Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Eric Lindblade. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Jim Hessler. And Jim, it's Super Bowl Sunday. We've got an extra special episode lined up for everyone. So to give a little bit of background, we had hoped that we would have had a Green Bay Buffalo Super Bowl. I'm a Packers fan. Jim's a Bills fan. Sort of. Of, <laughs> of course. That didn't happen. But we thought, you know what? Why leave out a Super Bowl extravaganza simply because our teams couldn't get the job done? So, Jim, when you think of special events, you think of big cities, you think of big bright lights, who do you think of? Well, Eric, while many of you have been watching Tom Brady in tonight's big game, you know, what some people would consider to be the NFL's GOAT, greatest of all time, we have our own Gettysburg GOAT, Dan Sickles, coming off the bench for a special halftime performance. So what we're doing tonight is we're coming to you live from the broadcasting booth at Getty's Gear, 777 Baltimore Street, with what we think is a special Super Bowl halftime Dan Sickles report. And it's going to be in the tradition of our special season one televised What Was Lee Thinking episode, but we're going to bring you tonight for the Super Bowl halftime, What Was Dan Sickles Thinking? We're going to break it down for you, all the X's and O's that Sickles and his staff put on the board for the third core football team. Now, I can only imagine people got so amped up for this. They're thinking, what could it be? We kind of teased it. And now all of a sudden, damn it, it's uh, sickles. Wah, wah, wah. Well, we thought about that. And for those of you thinking, oh, sickles again, a Super Bowl onslaught of sickles, I'd like to point a couple things out. First of all, for the record, to date, Eric and I have recorded 33 action-packed episodes, and this is actually only the third one devoted to Dan Sickles, but I would say think of it like the Super Bowl. You know, you're watching the big game tonight, you either love Tom Brady, you hate Tom Brady, you love to hate Tom Brady, or you hate to love Tom Brady, but you're still watching the game, and I would say the same for Dan Sickles. You love Dan Sickles. You hate Dan Sickles. You love to hate Dan Sickles. Or you hate to love Dan Sickles, but you're listening right now to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. So tonight, for one night only, Sickles is our Tom Brady. And Eric, dare I say that Miss Wilmerding might be our Giselle for this evening. I think that's a fair comparison. And if anyone doesn't know the Miss Wilmerding reference, then you need to buy my Sickles at Gettysburg book immediately following this broadcast. So before we get into one of our favorite topics of the Battle of Gettysburg, we first want to say, as we always do, our disclaimer, even though this is a special episode, we still got to give a special disclaimer. I'm speaking for myself. Jim's speaking for himself. In no way are we speaking as representatives for any organization that we might be a part of. Real quick, if you're looking for ways to help the show, you can find us on Facebook at the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, on Twitter at Gettysburg pod on Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, or you can email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out, follow us, interact. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. As we say every episode, the reviews matter. Thank you to everybody that has taken the time to give a review. And also, if you haven't yet, we hope you'll consider giving one on the podcast platform of your choice. Also, if you would like to donate to the show financially, you can do so in a couple of ways. One is through PayPal. 
And you can do that at paypal.me backslash Gettysburg Podcast, or you can give a monthly recurring donation of a couple bucks or so on Patreon. And you can find that at www.patreon.com backslash Gettysburg Podcast. Every Super Bowl needs a good sponsor. And we have sponsors tonight. The NFL, you know, they have Pepsi, they have Doritos, we have Getty's Gear, and we have Licensed Battlefield Guide, Rick Schrader, who is once again sponsoring this episode. Our friend and colleague, Rick, has been a Licensed Battlefield Guide since 2016. He's a retired orthopedic surgeon from Johnstown, PA, and Rick will be appearing very soon in a special medical two-parter. So we thank Rick not only for his sponsorship, but for all he has done to offer medical expertise to our colleagues during this pandemic. So folks, tomorrow, when you're standing around the water cooler and people are saying, what was your favorite commercial last night? You tell them the commercial for Getty's Gear and Licensed Battlefield Guide Rick Schrader were your Super Bowl favorites this year. All right. So here we are. It's almost game time. It's about to kick this thing off. What was Dan Sickles thinking? There you go, Eric. We're on the clock. We have no timeouts. Let's go for it. So first of all, what was Dan Sickles thinking? Now, you know, the military guys always like to say terrain drives the battle and they like to start with terrain. And while that's obviously true, I think, though, we have to first start with a quick understanding of the man himself and his experience. You know, when Dan Sickles is the quarterback in the pocket under pressure, how's he going to react? And, you know, what I always say is Sickles has got a few defining moments in his life. He's got the murder trial, the Battle of Gettysburg, misappropriation of monuments funds, his relationships with his many ladies, et cetera, et cetera. But I will always start out by arguing that Sickles is what I believe we should consider to be an emotional decision maker. You know, people always say, oh, Sickles was an idiot. No, no, he's not stupid. He's not an idiot, but he was a very emotional guy. And I think he can exhibit great courage, but also great anxiety. And emotional people tend to react when under pressure with tunnel vision. They tend to address their immediate threat and not really look at the big picture. So I think their ability to make quick emotional decisions and then come up with seemingly rational explanations later to justify their actions, I think that summarizes our GOAT, Dan Sickles. Jim mentioned it, you know, often more military-centric individuals that are watching or viewing the Battle of Gettysburg will say, you know, it's terrain that drives it, but ultimately any historical moment is an interpersonal relationship among Mm -hmm. people. People react to things differently than others. People's personalities matter. And I think one of the things we see with Sickles is, as you all know, Sickles is not a professional soldier. He comes from a political background. So the way you operate in Tammany Hall politics is different than maybe how you would operate in the Army of the Potomac. This also sets Dan Sickles apart from a lot of his colleagues. Keep in mind, too, that Sickles, I feel, is very attuned to any personal slights that he might get. So in the military, frankly, it's not there to make you feel good. Mm -hmm. It's to get the job done. Mm -hmm. Sickles, though, does not always interpret those things maybe as well as he should or understand that dynamic because he's foreign to it. Yeah, yeah, I think those are good points. And, you know, you bring up the idea of people and interpersonal relationships, and I think that's a great segue into another point that I wanted to, uh, to add. You know, people, I think, tend to mischaracterize Sickles as a highly independent 
general. They tend to mischaracterize him as kind of the hot dog off doing his own thing. Uh, you know, I'm not going to mention names, but I heard a colleague one time telling his group that Sickles told me to go to hell and Sickles was just going to do what Sickles wanted to do. I think that's a general, and it's a common, but it's a misreading of the, uh, the general situation. I would argue that Sickles, as an emotional person, is actually somebody who is very highly dependent upon other people. And if you look at his relationships with his wives, with Joe Hooker, with the Lincolns, and dare I say with Miss Wilmerding, his housekeeper, Sickles is in fact highly dependent on other people. And at Gettysburg, he can't depend on his commanding officer because they don't like each other. You know, him and Meade, as we've talked about before, and we will in the future, have this long history where they don't get along with each other. So that only increases his anxiety. And when emotional people get anxious, they got to do something. They got to act. They don't sit still, man. They got to take action. And you know what? Maybe we should add in tonight's disclaimer that I'm not a psychologist, but damn it, I think I got the right read on Dan Sickles. And I've often said one of Sickles' best talents, and I do believe Sickles is an intelligent, shrewd, smart guy. You can't survive in Tammany Hall politics and not be that. Well, you look at his whole lifelong resume, all the stuff he does. What I look at Sickles, one of his greatest gifts and talents is the ability to associate himself with people that can help promote mm -hmm. Sickles or help what he wants to do. And folks, people go, oh, well, you know, all he is is a brown noser. You know what? We have all had a moment where we've had a mentor. We've all had moments where we find people that can help us out professionally or in other areas. So there's nothing wrong with that. And Sickles being able to identify these relationships that can potentially help him. Yeah. That I think is a undercurrent in Sickles' life from really beginning to end. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that's why at Gettysburg, the transition from Hooker to Meade is so important. Because now Sickles doesn't have that lifeline to Army headquarters. And it's not just that George Meade is new to command. As I said a few minutes ago, Sickles and Meade don't like each other. There's some level of personal animosity dating back at least to late 1862. And so what you've got at Gettysburg, when we come back to this central question of what was Sickles thinking, Sickles in the capacity of a corps commander on the field probably is not used to the level of independent thinking that he's going to kind of be asked to do it July 2nd because he keeps going to headquarters or sending couriers and saying, hey, I don't know what to do. And when he doesn't really get the feedback that he feels he should be getting, he kind of then, you know, for lack of a better word, is going to kind of take matters or take the law into his into his own hands. But I think that's sort of, again, you know, we're kind of summarizing this here because, you know, we're during halftime. We got to get back yeah, to the big gotta game. Yeah, we got to keep moving. Yeah. But I think, uh, I think this, in my mind, is always to my satisfaction summarized how Dan Sickles approaches highly emotional, highly stressful decisions. And obviously the decision to act on July 2nd is going to fit into that category. And I think we cannot overstate the importance of this dynamic of going from Joseph Hooker, Army commander, yeah to George Meade, Army commander. Sickles and Hooker had a good relationship. Hooker, I think, kind of understood Sickles and maybe subconsciously understood how to deal with Sickles, maybe being a little more hands-on mm -hmm. with him or being a little more clear in what he wants to do. Really, Meade 
for a guy like Sickles is not very clear in terms of what he wants for Sickles at times. I think at least in Sickles' okay. mind, yeah, that leaves Sickles with a lot of doubt, a lot of concern. And I think we go back to that term, anxiety over about what to do. Think about when people feel anxious, they feel almost kind of trapped. There's a tendency to feel that there's only one way out mm -hmm. of this situation, right. even though there could be multiple other ones. But start to just kind of think about in that mindset. And what we're saying is put yourself at Sickles for a moment. Walk in Dan Sickles's shoes. In a moment, shoe. But think about what they're seeing, why they're deciding what they do. Don't use what you know now. Don't be a Monday morning quarterback on the battlefield. Think about it in the moment. The ball hasn't snapped yet and you just got the play call in. What are you going to do? Well, when I do my registered trademark sickles at Gettysburg tours, you know, one of the things I do when I spend a lot of time setting up the morning positioning and that sort of thing, and it all again comes back to what kind of guy sickles is, this notion of tunnel vision, because, you know, you can take them out on Cemetery Ridge, you can show the poor sight lines, but it's still logical for somebody to say, but yeah, why, but why the hell didn't he just go up the little round top over there? And, you know, there's no easy explanation for that in the historical record. But I think what you see from Dan Sickles is he gets this tunnel vision, this tunnel vision mentality, which we're going to come to more in a few minutes about the low ground that he's ordered to be in or that. But he gets this tunnel vision approach to, I don't want to be over there. I want to be out there. And once people like Dan Sickles set their sights on that sort of thing, it's kind of hard to uh, to dissuade him from it, you know, which kind of then gets to his experience. So let's talk about that a little bit. Now, as Eric said before, we all know Dan Sickles lacked West Point education. You know, his people like to laugh and snicker. He's not a professional soldier. No, he's not. But by 1863, he does have a respectable amount of military experience, starting at the brigade level, the division level, and then ultimately the Corps level. His corps was engaged, again, under Hooker, but engaged heavily at the Battle of Chancellorsville. He fought reasonably well. He made some questionable decisions, but he certainly fought bravely. But when I first arrived at Gettysburg, what we'll call the Gettysburg Territory, I, I often came across programs where some of the rangers and guides were saying stuff like he was an idiot. He wanted to be president. Um, you know, as we touched on earlier, he supposedly told me to go to hell. But, you know, I think this Mead Sickles fiasco is kind of a classic failure to communicate. But what people always think about when they're on the ground is, oh, Chancellorsville, Hazel Grove. He's trying to avoid a repeat of Hazel Grove. Eric, you want to start by telling the listeners a little bit about the Hazel Grove analogy? Yeah, really quick. At the Battle of Chancellorsville, Sickles and his troops are on relatively high ground at Hazel Grove. Eventually, the order is going to be given for them to withdraw from that area, thus leaving Hazel Grove open for Confederate artillery to really make life miserable for the Army of the Potomac. We get a lot of folks on tours that say, oh, okay, he's going back to Chancellorsville. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is Sickles never makes that mm -hmm. argument, which I think is actually a really strong argument if he's going to be making one. Yeah. But Sickles doesn't really think about that. But we cannot assume that that's not going through his mind there. I mean, it happened just a few months before. Right. 
he's looking at it. You know, we all are creatures of habit. If you have a situation that did not work well for you before and you start to see things yeah. starting to see very similar, you start to think, well, worst case scenario, here we go again. I think I think here we go again is exactly right. So remember, folks, Chancellorsville is only two months to the day earlier, and it's the last previous major engagement. So yeah, a couple thoughts about Chancellorsville. I often liken Hazel Grove to kind of the peach orchard in reverse. You know, Sickles is ordered to go into a salient and then ordered to come back. And he follows orders and the Confederates place their artillery in there and, and basically pound the Yankees out of their line at Chancellorsville. So again, it's kind of like the peach orchard in reverse. Now, Edward Porter Alexander, who was at Chancellorsville and at Gettysburg, basically wrote in his military memoirs that Sickles' move at Gettysburg, quote unquote, probably had in mind the advantage given the Confederates at Chancellorsville in allowing them the occupation of Hazel Grove. That's Porter Alexander. Now, I think if I'm not mistaken, Doubleday might say something similar in his memoirs, but a lot of modern historians have followed suit and said, yes, this is what Sickles was thinking. But as Eric pointed out, Sickles never really used Hazel Grove as an excuse. Here we go again, what Sickles did use as an excuse repeatedly for the remaining 50 years was the notion of Jackson bouncing out of the woods onto Howard's exposed flank at Chancellorsville. That's the memory that I think stuck with these guys equally or perhaps longer for this idea of, uh-oh, I'm on the flank, I can't see the enemy approaching, I got woods, I got trees, I got rocks in front of me. I got to move out to commanding ground. I think that's the here we go again factor that is at least equally as important as Hazel Grove. Simply put, nobody wants to be the 11th Corps at Chancellorsville. And think about how Sickles is viewing this. Meade is not thinking on July 2nd the Confederate attack is going to come from the south. Right. His focus is on to the north. It's Culp's Hill, it's Cemetery Hill, it's the Baltimore Pike. I think Meade looks at his roster. He feels Sickles is my weakest starter I have. I'm probably not going to put the ball in his hands. So we're going to run him away from the play. So Sickles here, though, is thinking, here I am being put out of sight, out of mind. Nobody's paying attention to me. This is exactly what happened to the 11th mm -hmm. Corps Chancellorsville. Yep. We take that past experience and then we take the position where he's at plus the communication really lack thereof with George Meade and we can really see a recipe for disaster brewing yeah we can as I said earlier and as I always say on tours it's a classic failure to communicate I really think it is so the third core position in the morning of July 2nd is basically running south from about where the Father Corby Monument is today. It's going to run down what is today Hancock and Sedgwick Avenue, running past the George Weikert Farm, uh, running to something that we've since dubbed Munchauer Knoll, which is that little rise of ground just north of Little Round Top. And at least Division Commander David Burney in his report kind of indicated that by about 7 a.m. on the morning of July 2nd, he was comfortably posted to about Little Round Top. Now, the problem is earlier in that morning, going back to the night of July 1st, you had elements of Geary's men from the 12th Corps positioned somewhere around Little Round Top. I think where they actually were is still open to a good, healthy, and vigorous debate. But Sickles, at some point here, is going to receive orders to replace Geary's men. 
And as General Meade later said, I directed Sickles to form his corps in line of battle on the left of Hancock's second corps and indicated to him that his right was to rest upon Hancock's left and his left was to extend to the Round Top Mountain, plainly visible if it was practicable to occupy it practicable where have we heard that word before you know maybe we should do a if practicable episode sometime and just come into all the instances where that kind of screws somebody up stay tuned for a seven part episode maybe for super bowl in 2025 2026 or yeah, something we'll get yeah, to that absolutely so yeah so sickles has basically got and i should point out too he's got verbal orders there's no indication that these are written orders so we know verbal orders can go astray but Sickles has got verbal orders to extend Hancock's left, occupy the round tops if practicable, and basically to replace elements of the 12th Corps who have probably left at about 5 a.m. So you kind of got this order here. And as we've said, Sickles, A, is going to claim he's not sure where the 12th Corps was. He's later going to claim that he doesn't have enough men to extend to the round tops. And that's something that, you know, we can obviously debate. But then he's also going to claim that he doesn't like the low ground opposite today's Sedgwick Avenue, of which any view of Confederate approach would be blocked by Hawks Ridge, by Trussell's Woods, and things of that nature that would prevent him from seeing the enemy approach. Again, uh-oh, I'm Oliver Howard all over again. And the times I've brought groups into what I like to call the Sickles Hole. Yeah, well, Sickles called it that. Yeah, That's he calls it from. the yeah. hole, yeah. yeah. You know, when you go into this, people often say, wow, you really can't see anything. Now, one of the things, you know, we often get criticized for, I think, being overly supportive of Dan Sickles. People have referred to him as our boy, our yes, guy. Yes, yes, yes. You know, but- oh, that tiresome Sickles oh, again. Oh, yeah. But the reality is he's a key player in this story. And what I will criticize Sickles for here is when he gets those verbal orders from me, he may not understand them. He may not fully rationalize what it is that he it's want for him to be done. But Sickles, to my knowledge, never goes up to Little Round Top. No, he doesn't. That's a problem. That's a problem. He also never, to my knowledge, goes further up Cemetery Ridge. So if you would look at those two points on each side of the third course line, you do get better sight lines. You see a better sense of where you are just mm-hmm. when you're in that position. Sickles is already suffering from, as we're saying, that tunnel vision. Yeah. He's not looking around him. Now, even if he had done those things, would he still made the same decision? Who knows? Right. But I think we have to look at that he does not show any, for lack of a better term, curiosity about how to make these orders work. I think he's already thinking worst case scenario from yeah. the get-go. Yeah, I think so too. And this could be one of Sickles' shortcomings as a Corps commander is probably an inability here to see the big picture. So I think that's right. You know, the other thing too that we didn't mention, and we should probably just throw on the table here for sake of completeness, is the pain map. So when George Meade arrived at Gettysburg uh, very early, like about midnight, 1 a.m. on the morning of July 2nd, Meade and some of his staff rode up and down Cemetery Ridge in the darkness And Captain William Payne on his staff is said to have basically sketched a map of all the positions where Meade is supposedly going to want his troops placed. And I get asked about the pain map a lot. Jim, were you aware of the pain map? Was Sickles aware of the pain map? And it's kind of a muddied history on this. Uh, But long story short is that there is a, a version, at least one version of this map in existence today that doesn't 
show sickles on Little Round Top. And so you can kind of play this both ways. Sickles' critics will say, no, Meade gave him this map and showed him where he was supposed to be. And frankly, Sickles' supporters will say, well, you know, if he gave him the pain map, the pain map doesn't put him on Little Round Top. So it's kind of one of those things that you can kind of play both ways. But the only thing that I'll say is I kind of throw the pain map out the window as, as a general argument because what seems to be going on here is more of this verbal back and forth. So you're right. We don't have any record of Sickles going up the little round top and saying, wow, what a great view. Because obviously if he had, that might alleviate a lot of the concerns about not being able to see the enemy approach. The other problem Sickles has, though, is in that stretch that he's ordered to defend Sickles and his boys, his coaching staff, if you will, for our Super Bowl analogy, don't think they have adequate room to place their artillery, and they don't think they have adequate fields of fire to use that artillery. And one thing I will say, folks, if you ever go into the field literally just south of the George Weikert farm, after the park has done one of their controlled burns, not only is that field low and people always say it's kind of wet and marshy, and again, it's blocked by this woodlot, but there's an awful lot of rocks in that field. I mean, there's a stunning amount of rocks in that field that are often covered by the tall grass. And we put a picture of that in our Gettysburg's Peach Orchard book, so you should check that out. But it's not, in their view, good ground for artillery. And that's going to be another factor that's going to go into what was Sickles thinking. And so often when we interpret this battle, it's important to try to connect people to things that they have experienced. Because I don't know what it's like to be a general on a battlefield not getting along with my commander. I don't know what that's like. But I have gone to school with classmates I didn't like and I had to work with them on a project together. I've had jobs where I didn't like my coworkers and had to work with them on something. Those are not easy situations. And if you look at that, you're not going to be communicating as well as you should. You're probably not going to be giving that extra effort to understand. And I would argue with Meade, ultimately it's Meade's job to communicate what he expects for his army. You can't just simply say, well, this is what I told you. You got to make sure it gets done too. And if you know that Sickles has these issues, if you are unsure of Sickles, you make sure he gets the coaching that he needs to be able to at least perform up to the standard you're looking for. Meade, I think, really drops the ball on that. Now, this is not a criticism of George Meade, but he's got a lot going on. We understand that. He's also on his fourth day in right, command. He's new to command. We so, get it. you know, those little nuances here and there, but I think we cannot escape the fact that Meade has some blame into this. You know, you cannot just simply just say that, okay, well, it's all Dan Sickles' fault. It's, there's a lot of issues. Yeah, you know, I would, I, I don't know that I would use the word blame. I mean, it's a strong word, uh, but I, you know, it'd certainly say responsibility or accountability. So, you know, for the record, somewhere between 8 a.m. and 9 a.m., Meade sends Captain Meade down to Sickles's bivouac and basically says, hey, are you in position yet? Sickles says, I'm not really sure where the 12th Corps was. He says that through Captain Randolph, the artillery chief. You know, we're not really sure where, where Gary was. So Captain Meade goes back to headquarters. This time, General Meade tells Captain Meade, 
you know, more specifically, this is what I want Sickles to do. Captain Mead comes back. By this time, Sickles and his boys are mounted up and kind of riding around. But Sickles gives indication again that he's not really sure about what he's supposed to do. But at this point, Captain Mead kind of just goes on to other duties. So it's really Sickles who at about 11 o'clock goes to Mead's headquarters, uh, really looking for assistance and posting the troops and asking for some clarification on the ground. Now, I'm going to pause for a minute because I know there are skeptics out there. Super fans, Scott, wink, wink. I know you're probably one of them. You know, people say stuff like, well, you know, why did he wait until 11 o'clock? And, and how hard is it to just follow the damn orders and stuff like that? And in my view, that's really not the point. The point is, he's clearly said on several occasions, I don't get it. And folks, this is a great leadership tour lesson. If you got the difficult subordinate who says, I don't get it, you probably need to make sure somebody spells it out. And let's use the football analogy. If you're in practice before the big game and your quarterback says, I do not understand how this play is supposed to be run, do you just say, well, figure it out? Or do you bring your coaches over there and work with him until he figures it out? Or if he can't figure it out, put somebody in that does know how to run the play. Yeah. Once again, it's this is that interpersonal issue that so often impacts historical events that I think it's hard to quantify. You know, often we look at the what happens, but we never really delve into the whys and hows. And yeah. that's part of this, which it's hard to do at times because we do not know every conversation that Mead and Sickles had. No, we, we don't. just know what's said, but we don't know the exact tenor of it. We don't know how it was said. We don't know how Sickles interpret it. We can only look at this after the fact. You know, and we're probably a little bit late with the disclaimer here. We probably should have disclaimed we are not making excuses for Sickles and we're not saying Sickles was right. And, you know, the results of his move are, you know, a totally different thing. All we're doing here, like we did in the What Was Lee Thinking episode, we're taking a very commonly asked what the hell was Dan Sickles thinking? How do you break the fish hook? You know, type of question. And we're trying to break it down to say, well, this is what we think was going through his head. And I also know there's, there's some historians out there who would say, oh, you can't figure out what he was thinking. Well, I think we've got enough in the historical record to take a good educated guess at it. So he goes to headquarters at 11 a.m. Meade is unable to accompany Sickles back out to the position. So finally they get, General Henry Hunt to come out and look at the ground. Hunt thinks that they're basically just going out for assistance with posting of the artillery. And it is at that point, Sickles takes Hunt all the way out towards the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road, kind of indicates to Hunt, no, I kind of got this whole new new line in mind, which is going to then open up a new uh, series of events. And we should just give quick attention to a Gettysburg favorite, John Buford. Yes. Whose men will be at around this time on the Emmitsburg Road. We're going to deal with this in a special John Buford episode. But could this be the JNO Buford report? For yeah, tonight? let's go ahead and do a special JNO Buford report. Wow, what a Super, Super Bowl. Bowl. Sickles and Buford together? You know, this is, this is an all-star game, if you will. A clash of titans. But, you know, we're going to get into what Buford does on July 2nd at another time. But needless to say, up to this point, as long as you have Buford's guys out in front of you, there's still at least the hope that I have an early warning system if something happens. That's going to help Sickles sleep a little easier. Dare I say Buford could be like the offensive line? You know what? John Buford is Sickles' left tackle. He's protecting his blind side. That is if Sickles is a right-handed quarterback. <laughs> but needless to say, yeah, 
he alleviates a lot of those worries. Now, when Buford eventually withdraws and nobody comes back into there, well, all of a sudden your sickle's thinking, who's watching my back? Who is doing this? which now makes that need to move forward, at least in Sickle's mind, more critical. Yeah, I would totally agree. And, you know, the other piece of this related to Buford and related to the uh, desire to move forward is the perceived importance of the Emmitsburg Road. So from, from the general area of Cemetery Ridge, kind of north of George Weigert's farm, so if you go out to the field today and you stand near Father Corby, you get a much better view of the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road Ridge. And from that area, Confederate artillery, if they were to occupy the Emmitsburg Road, would potentially have an artillery line that they could kind of rein into lower Cemetery Ridge. But one of the things that is giving Sickles initial comfort is not only this idea that Buford's cavalry is out there as a vedette, as an early warning uh, system, but we also have some infantry skirmishers going back to the night of July 1st, basically more or less along the Emmitsburg Road with their left flank, you know, somewhere around the Sherfy property. So you've got skirmishers out there, you've got Buford out there. But yeah, what's going to happen in mid-afternoon, Sickles and Hunt go out to the Peach Orchard. Sickles proposes a new line. Hunt says to Sickles, well, you know, before you occupy this line, you should go take a look at Pitzer's Woods, which is across from the Emmitsburg Road, because if there's any Confederates in force in Pitzer's Woods, you might have a difficult time occupying this position. And so Sickles is going to send a recon out there, elements of the first U.S. sharpshooters and the third Maine combined about 300 guys or so to do a little recon of the woods. And while they're having this firefight in Pitzer's Woods, Buford is going to get orders from headquarters to withdraw and go back and refit, which is going to remove what Sickles considers to be a valuable cavalry screen from his front. And I think this is the moment where Sickles really makes up his mind. Yeah, I agree. I think an interesting what if. You have the fight in Pitcher's Woods, but Buford doesn't leave. I don't necessarily know if Sickles makes that same decision. Or if you don't have the fight in Pitcher's Woods, but Buford remains, who knows? But the moment that Sickles is seen that his screen is gone, and that now there is enemy in my front, well, Sickles now knows what to do. You know, once again, Sickles, we talk about as being a very emotional mm -hmm. decision maker. I think at this point, Sickles feels he's almost trapped into doing this. He has no other option. Right. Nobody in headquarters is listening to him in his view. I gotta act. And at this moment, I'll often say on tours, the best thing Sickles could have done, go to Army headquarters or send somebody to Army headquarters and let George Meade know what's sure. going on. sure. But once again, throughout the day, Sickles has interpreted all of his interactions of Army headquarters as being very dismissive. They're not listening to him. So the time I go waste trying to talk to Meade about this, the enemy's going to seize this high ground and make my life miserable because I know they're there. Yeah. This is really the moment where Sickles decides what play he's going to run. And just to be clear, the standard interpretation is often along the lines of Sickles hated Meade and he wanted to destroy the army. Sickles wanted to be president and this would get him into the White House. I'm sorry, folks. All of that stuff is bunk. I would use stronger language, but you know, this is a family show. Again, right or wrong, Sickles feels like he's been rebuffed at army headquarters and this is what he's got to do. Now, at this point, people will always say, oh my God, Sickles violated the interior lines of Meade's fishhook defense by creating a dangerous salient at the Peach Orchard. Folks, I don't want to do that. That's boring old school history, man. 
What I want to do is instead of talking about the fish hook and the salient, what I've been doing on my talks and on my tours in recent years is kind of doing a more overarching kind of terrain assessment of this to, again, get you into the head thinking, okay, from a military perspective, what's he thinking? So terrain assessment has got a lot of key features. One of the key features of terrain assessment is, is the position key terrain. So from Sickles' perspective, he's looking at the Peach Orchard, he's looking at the Emmitsburg Road, he's probably, or his staff officers are probably thinking, if the Confederates get here first, they will not only have a good artillery position, but they will more or less be right on top of my lines before I can do anything about it. Key terrain, it's a critical component of terrain assessment, and it's basically saying, does this ground give marked advantage to one side over the other. Sickles thinks, and I'm emphasizing the word thinks, that the Emmitsburg Road and the Peach Orchard would give his opponents a decided advantage. It's one factor in his decision-making. And another individual on the battlefield that would feel that the area around the Peach Orchard and the Emmitsburg Road is, and I use the term air quotes here, key terrain mm-hmm. yeah. is none other than Robert E. Lee. Right. That's part of his plan on July 2nd. So it's not just Sickles thinking this is important ground. Lee thinks it as well. So what we now see is Sickles has identified it as key ground. He feels that I'm not going to get any headway at headquarters. And I now know the enemy's out there. At this point with Sickles personality-wise and everything we know about him, it's kind of academic. And yeah. what I say with Sickles is I don't necessarily agree with what he did. But I understand why he did it. And I think that's the biggest challenge that a lot of students of this battle have is that they want to play into the more dogmatic interpretations of Sickles, that he's an idiot, that he's power hungry, that he's, he's a for glory. Tammany Hall politician, not a trained soldier, all that stuff. Yeah, you know, Sickles, I think, is doing what he thinks is best for his guys. Mm-hmm. Oh, I agree. And I think if you factor all these things in, he doesn't want to be Oliver Howard at Chancellorsville. He does not want to have a Hazel Grove repeat. He's not hearing anything from his boss. And there's now enemy troops in front seemingly threatening this key position. Well, you know, I don't see how he steers out of that. And I'm going to add one more factor to that because emotional people often need reinforcement and people to agree with them. And I think if General Hunt's post-war writings are any indication, Hunt probably gave Sickles some very mixed signals when he was out at the Peach Orchard. Now, when Hunt went out there and they kind of looked at the ground, yeah, Hunt cautioned Sickles about Pitzer's Woods, uh, but Hunt also, at least in his writings, said there, as an artillery officer, there was a lot of advantage to be gained by occupying this position, more room to maneuver, better fields of fire, and in Hunt's writing, he basically said if the army was going to transition from a defense to an offense, this was the position from which to do so. Now, that's Henry Hunt writing, again, after the war, and as Hunt was leaving, you know, I'll caveat this, as Hunt was leaving, Sickles said, do I have your authority on General Meade's authority to move forward? And Hunt said, no, you do not. But I do think it gave Sickles enough mixed signals to, in his mind, probably give him a little bit of that validation that I think he was emotionally looking for. And with Hunt, frankly, if Hunt could have thrown Sickles under the bus post-war, he would have. And nobody, I think, would have really felt bad for Sickles after the fact. 
there is something, if you look at it in that moment, there are advantages to that position. Yeah. Now, what Sickles will later do really negates a lot of those advantages. Yeah. And, and, and you know, that's another episode altogether. Yeah. But what we want you to do is think about in the moment what Sickles is thinking. Get out of this standard interpretation where you know the outcome. Do not always judge an idea based on the outcome. Using the football analogy, the coach can call the right play, but the execution is screwed up and it looks terrible. Not saying Sickles made a good call here. Because you'll have to tune in at another time to find out how it turns out because we got to get back to the game. But what Sickles is doing here, this is what he's seen. This is what he's thinking. And ultimately why he makes the decision he does. And of course, it's a decision that still to this day, we debate. Mm-hmm. endlessly yeah and i'm gonna add one more too longstreet touched on this and, and this goes back to the terrain assessment aspect longstreet touched on this a lot in his post-war accounts another component of terrain assessment is avenues of approach do you have the adequate avenues of approach to reach your position but at the same time are you also potentially blocking the enemy's avenues of approach and longstreet said to his more or less his dying day, that when Sickles moved forward, Sickles cut off Longstreet's room to maneuver and room to work in trying to get towards Cemetery Ridge. Longstreet never used the term avenues of approach. I'm using the term avenues of approach because in that scenario, what Longstreet was saying kind of made sense. And also something to keep in mind, using another football analogy, on July 2nd in the afternoon, Longstreet is not starting first and 10. He's starting first and 20. Yeah. He's got a longer way to go now to his objective. And that's something you cannot discount. Distance matters on a battlefield. Yeah, actually, if you want to uh, if you want to add the counter march in there, Longstreet's been sacked and has lost 20 yards, you know, even on top of that, right? So you could add that analogy in. Yeah, and we'll come to Longstreet at a later date, upcoming series of episodes there. So Yeah, so I'd like to kind of summarize, right? Dan Sickles, emotional guy. You've got a couple of Chancellorsville factors working in there. You think the ground north of Little Round Top is low. You think you're being ignored by headquarters. You think the ground along the Peach Orchard Emmitsburg Road Corridor is key terrain. And you think by going out there, you can basically improve your observation in fields of fire and potentially cut down the enemy's avenues of approach. I think, folks, all of those are understandable factors. I'm not going to dismiss, damn it, they're in the army and he should just listen to George Meade's orders because I, we forgot to add when Sickles was at headquarters at 11 a.m., he said to Meade, do I have sort of any liberty with this? And Meade said, yes, within the general confines of what I have told you, how you execute this is up to you. And again, folks, right or wrong, that gives Sickles in his mind some of the wiggle room to potentially modify this, we'll say. Yeah, I think, as we say, we may or may not agree with what Sickles does, but we understand why he does it. And I think more than any other figure at this battle, people view Dan Sickles with a sense of emotion. Folks, when you're viewing historic events, you sometimes have to remove yourself from any emotions that you feel in terms of what you think of Sickles as a person, what you necessarily think the merits of his decision are. Look at it based on the facts. Look at the situation at the time. 
not if you think Dan Sickles is a good guy or not. Ultimately, his personal value right. in your mind does not matter into the decisions he makes. Look at what he does, not who you think he is. Yeah, and you know, as Sickles' biographer, I can definitely attest to that. I've dealt with a lot of emotional people on these topics related to Sickles over the years. Some people that just don't want to hear anything about the guy. And in a lot of cases, what you find when you talk to these folks is they're turned off by his personal life. Well, folks, that makes no difference here. In many cases, they are very turned off by what he does to George Meade's reputation after the Battle of Gettysburg. And that might be the hardest part for Gettysburg enthusiasts to kind of check at the door here. But again, all we are looking at today is what was happening on the morning and afternoon of July 2nd, 1863. And for this conversation, what happens afterwards, totally irrelevant. It's just what was he thinking at the time and whatever he does to Meade afterwards, that will be a fun episode but that will be an episode in a later date. All right, so we have a limited amount of time because this is a halftime show, so we can't go over. So million-dollar question, Jim, was Sickles right? What do you think? Well, I know folks have been waiting for years to hear me answer this question. Eric, I'm proud tonight for the first time in public to finally answer this question to everyone's satisfaction so it will never be debated again and oh whoa 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 jim we gotta get back oh, to the what? game we are out of time oh, no, we're ladies out of time. and gentlemen this has been the gettysburg podcast thank you very much enjoy the game the folks. nfl the nfl is cutting off our airtime. oh no we'll have to answer this some other time take care folks and enjoy the game